From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razozan. And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we will talk about the dire humanitarian crisis in Yemen and how one organization is trying to raise awareness about the unfolding human catastrophe and to raise funds to help people with food and medicine. We'll be joined by three founding members of Yemen Relief Project, a grassroots charitable organization working to provide humanitarian relief while improving the overall quality of life of the Yemeni people in underserved communities. But first, we go to London to continue our conversation with Moroccan anthropologist and activist Dr. Miriam Aura about the revival of anti-government protests in the Northern Reef region of Morocco's Mediterranean coast. Do stay with us. Last October, protests erupted in Morocco's reef region after a fish vendor named Mohsen Fikri was crushed to death by a garbage truck compactor as he tried to retrieve fish the police had taken from him, claiming it was caught illegally. The protests have continued through 2017 and have taken up many of the same demands made during the February 20th movement of 2011, the large-scale protest movement during the Arab Spring. Anthropologist Mariam Aurak has called the recent protest as the quote unfinished business of Moroccan Arab Spring activists, and some on social media have been calling the latest wave of widespread demonstrations the new February 20th, referring to the movement of 2011. On June 26, during the eighth holiday at the end of Ramadan, around 50 protesters were arrested following violent clashes with Moroccan police in the northern city of Al Husseima in Morocco's northern reef region. Khalil Bendib picked up his conversation with Dr. Auraq, where he left it last week, about the latest protests in Morocco and what this means for the democracy movement in that country. Miriam Aura, welcome back to Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. It's great to have you with us again. Thank you. Things are heating up in Morocco as we speak. People have been demonstrating, and the police now has left any pretense of kid gloves behind, and they're assaulting people, beating them up, arresting them. More than 50 people were arrested. Tell us more of what's going on right now. Yes, you're right. Velvet uh, gloves have gone off, and I think what's really symbolic is the shock about the uh, level of violence on Eid al-Fitr, on the celebration of Eid after Ramadan. People went out in Al-Husayma in a peaceful demonstration, and on Eid al-Fitr was one of the most violent days, basically. And, and that's supposed really to be a great celebration. The Eid is like uh, yes. the equivalent of Christmas in this country. Exactly. And a lot of the commentaries were sort of in that line, like the lovely day of the year shed with blood. So it's kind of the lowest point I think we've seen so far. We've seen a wavering approach of the government, sort of good cop, bad cop approach since late May when the protests kicked off. But the phase we're in now, basically since last week, is really extremely violent. The police have been arresting people left and right. They still haven't released Mr. Zivzafi, whose arrest and detention 
is a big part of these demonstrations. The king, he's made some noises about being unhappy with the situation. Tell us what the king's reaction has been. Yeah, so that's really interesting because a lot of people are basically saying that it's part of the uh, strategy of the Mahzen that when... When you say the Mahzen, you mean the state, the monarchy. Yeah, so the reference to the state of Morocco, which is both negative and neutral reference. Right. That one of the ways to sort of throw sand in the eyes of critics and people is to use this sense of disappointment by the king. So there was this idea that the king himself was disappointed in the politicians and the law enforcement in how they dealt with the situation during the protest. And actually, nobody really takes that serious. I mean, nothing can be done in terms of the decisions around police responses, the legal cases, etc., without some kind of consent from the king. It's an interesting strategy to come out and say, oh, I have no idea what's going on. This is all going on behind my control, but, I mean, it's not really taken serious. He actually dangled the carrot. He said, well, I'm disappointed that some of the developmental projects in that region have not been carried out. But he didn't talk about the fate of the prisoners, the people who are Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, the developmental projects, I mean, it's also, yeah, it's a little bit of a joke. Those who are you know, looked into this and investigated these matters will tell you the major corporations that are in control of these large development projects, particularly in the port cities, are co-owned by the king. I mean, if anyone knows everything, then it's him and his financial advisors. So this is an interesting strategy that partly works. I mean, a lot of people would say, it's not the fault of the king. He doesn't know what's going on. We should give him a chance. So it kind of partly works, this discourse. Some people were shocked at the way women are being treated in these demonstrations. No, that's really interesting because there's, of course, this sort of general idea of Morocco in sort of similar to Jordan as countries where monarchies have tried to at least do something very progressive with regards to women's rights in Morocco, the Mudawana. So there is this idea that the reign of Mohammed VI is also a reign of progressive policies and that he himself personally has made an effort in guaranteeing women's rights. So it's kind of branding also itself as a champion of women's rights in the international community. And what we see now is that after a lot of talk and text about women's rights in the sort of abstract sense, we see that on the streets there really is no difference between the baton used against men or women. And the number of people that have been arrested uh, include a lot of women. The so-called leaders of the movement in Al-Husayma include women. Celia is arrested not long after Zafzafi was arrested. She's the one who basically took over when he was arrested. Nawal bin Isa, a woman, mother of four from Al-Husayma, was arrested and intimidated as well. So I think this recent chapter in Moroccan political history has really given us the most concrete example of the difference between women's rights and women emancipation as rhetoric and women's rights and women emancipation as practice. Give us some more examples of this gap between what the law ostensibly 
lays out and says are women's rights and in practical life what's still not happening. Right. So just to offer a little bit of context, these discussions about women's rights or often summarized as Mudewana are debates that have particularly uh, increased since the current king took over the throne from his father, so in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So Mudewana is the name of this new law uh, concerning family law and women's rights. Yeah, so it's not exactly new, and that's really interesting. This has been part of the feminist and women's movement since decolonization. 1956. 56, yes, mm-hmm. and it was already after, the day after, basically, independence, which was a negotiated independence. Women went to the street because the the family law, which is what the Mudawan actually is, family law is what really, I mean, impacts women's lives very intensely in terms of marriage, in terms of motherhood, etc., was a big disappointment. So in the sort of post-colonial movement, uh, there already was a lot of bottom-up organizing by women's groups. And this has been beautifully written and commented about by the late uh, Fatima Mernisi, but also Fatima Sadiqi, who wrote and studied about this. So the Mudawana has been an issue that has been part of political life for much longer, but at the end of Hassan Tani, the king's, current king's father's reign, the debates were brewing again. And so one of the things the new king did as part of his new sort of entrance as the progressive king was a sort of update or redressing of the Mudawana, but also of human rights issues and media law, etc. So there was a series of issues that were really important to sort of create and craft this image of the new progressive king. And I have to say, on the level of representation, there really were changes. So I'm not being cynical and saying, well, women are being beaten up, so there was no change. Actually, on the level of representation, you just remember, I don't know if you remember, but when the king married, it was historical. It was for the first time in the history of Morocco, that the wife of the king appeared publicly Mm. and she was unveiled. So on the level of representation, there really were a number of interesting uh, changes. Symbolically. Symbolically, yes. And of course, this brings political weight as well. You know, it helps those women who don't want to veil or want to work or be publicly active like the king's wife. It gives them legitimacy. So it's not unimportant. But like a lot of critics already said about these women's rights programs, for whom there is this huge difference, which we have also seen and already discussed in terms of current women's rights and feminist movements in other parts of the world, where there are also the program and the interest of a particular class of society. The overwhelming majority of Morocco, and we tend to forget that in our academic offices or capital cities, the overwhelming majority is uh, lower middle class, lower class or middle class and probably even poor. They are outside the law. They have no rights. Why is that? Why are they outside the law? Uh, I don't think it's very unique to Morocco. We can see this also. If we look, I was just watching something on TV about a young mother in the United States who's been facing a lot of financial problems and being traced by the system. I mean, when you are poor and you don't have legal representation or you're not valid, uh, you're a liability, often a lot of the 
privileges are not there for you. And so in these cases in Morocco, what you see is that, for instance, women from working classes or poor poor working classes, actually, they don't have the same rights that are there in the mudawana that is officially already for them, such as divorce. We know a lot of women who are not able to divorce from their husbands, even though the new so-called new mudawana allows that because you can get away with a lot of things in Morocco through bribery, through intimidation, etc. So this is just one example of why power and legitimacy are not equally distributed. And when you have a society that has such high levels of inequality, where you have a large, large section that is on the very bottom, you will see that at some point these debates don't impress a lot of people. But as you said, these last two weeks, two or three weeks, were a really very violent mirror in our face of what the role of women really entails once they decide to raise their voice and go to the streets. And how were all these women who over 60 years have been courageously activating, doing all they could to make things better for their fellow Moroccan women, how were they treated generally by the government? So I think what is interesting also here is, again, a bit of context in the sense that the women's movements and other progressive uh, movements for change, for equality, have traditionally been part of what we can call a left progressive politics. And what is important to remember is that, in this case, feminist movements and other groups have been also part of the left in Morocco that were crushed in the 60s and 70s and until the 80s. So in the so-called years of lead, Ayam al-Rasas under King Hassan II, you know, the sort of institutional or organizational infrastructure of all these organizations were largely crushed. People were arrested, killed, tortured terribly. There were some iconic examples of women leaders like Saida Nabhi was a radical leftist who died in a hunger strike uh, in prison and who is now being, by the way, remembered. So it's also really interesting to look now carefully into the sort of images of the protests we've seen very recently. I've seen women carrying posters, and men, by the way, of Sa'id al-Nabhi. So there's also this kind of moment where also these women and men from the recent past are being are being remembered, are being honored. So this context is really important to understand how difficult it was for groups to survive and to continue. And in that light, I think it's quite extraordinary that they actually did, to a large extent, continue and survive, the human rights organizations, the women's organizations, etc. So I think this is really also important to remember, that what we see now is despite the attempts to undermine the histories and the legacies of these movements and groups. Speaking of the terrible repression that went on for the better part of four decades, under the previous king, mm. who was known worldwide for his terrible uh, dictatorial, uh, the, the way he treated his people, torturing, killing, disappearing people. One of the most, if not the most famous example, was that of uh, Bambarka, Mehdi mm. Bambarka, mm. who was literally disappeared. Mm -hmm. And to this day, uh, nobody's clearly exactly sure 
what happened to him, where he ended up. I had the pleasure of interviewing his son a few years ago. Right. Wow. And, yeah, yeah it was fantastic to speak yeah. with him. Yeah. Um, I was pleasantly surprised, I must say, back in 20, 2005, I was in Morocco visiting to see a magazine on sale in the streets uh, speaking about the affaire Bambarka, mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. I was quite surprised because I thought yeah. it must yeah. still be a big taboo. Yeah. How is that today spoken about, remembered in Morocco? When did you say you were there? I was there in 2005. Right. So that's really interesting because so I've been looking into these periods to basically better understand what happened because there's this idea that there has been a lot of improvement and then there's this sense of we're going back to the years of lead. So I've been looking into this and I found that actually it's exactly the period you're mentioning is when the decline started. started. So basically yeah. since the 2000s, there was this window of opportunity with a new king and all these promises, you know, this reconciliation uh, committee that would look into the terrible things Hassan II did, testimonies to forget and forget and move on, these women rights, human rights, ratification of all kinds of international agreements, and a new type of press engagement. So this is the period where we, for instance, saw also, maybe that's one of the magazines you saw, but this was the period that you saw journalists like Ali Nuzla, Ali Marabot, Ahmed bin Shemsi. Yes, it was right, um, I think it was right before uh, we started right. hearing about these cases. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's like Telkel, Lakum, etc. would come up with really interesting counter-hegemonic narratives about the years of lead, but also, I think, you know, stories about uh, prisoners in Tesmamert, Bimberka, one of them. So it's really interesting that actually because of that window of opportunity, those few years, it's almost as if a new generation of journalists and activists sort of smelled the opportunity and wanted to uh, push forward. And that is when the backlash started. This is the period when more and more journals were being closed and journalists were writing those kind of stories and doing interviews with families of of ex-prisoners or martyrs were getting extraordinary high fines, which was a sort of democratic way to silence them. So not anymore torture them to death, but give them fines of millions of dirhams so that they cannot continue their uh, work anymore. So that's really interesting because it was a brief period where we began to learn about this part of history that only the radical left would know about, such as the disappearance of Benbarka. It was also for me a period to rediscover those stories and to find out. It's shock. I don't know if you discussed that with his son, but to also find out in shock how much support there still was for the Moroccan regime by his international allies. So Benbarka's disappearance and assassination would not have happened without the French oh, collaboration. Not just French, but apparently British, Israeli, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, US. Yeah. Uh, it was like they all yeah. ganged up on yeah. the poor Mehdi Benbarka. Yes, yes. I mean, you see this also in other cases where, on the one hand, we're being told by the liberal 
democracies in the West that's great that their Arab uprisings have shown that they are finally sort of democratizing themselves. But actually, there was a very concrete reason why they were not able to, because they were actually receiving, these dictators were receiving all this support. And this is also the case now under the new, I don't know why we're still using the term new, I think for a large group of activists, this is the only king they've ever known. It just shows how old we are. But Mohammed VI, it's also clear, I am very, very curious why there hasn't been more media exposure about what's happened in the past weeks, because this is epic, what's happening. This is groundbreaking. This is a historical chapter in the political consciousness of the people. And yet... I still have to see, you know, the number of articles that we would have seen in the international, at least in the Anglophone press, about what's happening. I think it has to do with the sort of, you know, yes. powerful allies of the king. Very strong alliance that was reciprocated. Morocco, when I was growing up in Algeria, was a notorious, and I don't mean the country, I mean the government, the, the state, was notorious for, uh, it was a poster boy for a neo-colonialist yes. regime. It yeah. was actively complicit yeah. in the disappearance and murder yeah. of Lumumba, among other horrible things that they helped make happen, let alone disappearance, torture probably, and murder of Mahdi Pampaka, yeah. who was a great symbol yeah. of third world independence, let alone selling out their own Jewish citizens to Israel, yeah. Yeah. and on and on. The complicity mm -hmm. has been astounding. But that's probably why Morocco, yeah. just like Jordan, get a pass with the Western media. Yeah. They're the model students. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny that you and I are talking about this because uh, it's partly your fault. I mean, it's <laughs> interesting, but the reason why the decolonization process has happened in a certain way for Morocco was, and this is what all international actors agreed, even the inter-imperial competitors. So the French were competing with the Spanish, the Americans were also. What they all agreed about was we do not want another Algeria. So the Algeria was the example of what none of them wanted. Meaning Such the insurrection, the hmm? independence uh, movement yes. and the war. So the revolution, the, the, uh, the anti-colonial resistance, which was kind of like... It was a testimony of the power and the will of a people, but it also had very clear progressive connotations. Not that it remained. I think that Algeria declined and became a dictatorship very soon after, but yes. at least at that moment, it was an example for the whole third world at that time, third world, but also for radical youth movements in Europe. And you cannot understand, for instance, the student uprisings in France in the 60s without understanding Algeria. So it was clear that Morocco, they could not afford having a neighboring country of Algeria also seeing the same inclinations. It would become a kind of domino effect. And so that is why very quickly they were given independence in a sort of smooth transition in their view. I mean, Morocco was, yeah. Yes, as I said, in their view. That's what the Algerians always snicker about. They say the Moroccans didn't really have to fight for the independence, which is not true, because there was Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's competing histories, and we talked about it, I think, last yeah. time, also yeah. about there's a chapter in this history that has, of course, been overwritten, and this explains the reef 
the northern regions, Greece, it's exactly that period of 58, 59, when people were saying, no, we don't want this kind of independence. This is not really independence. And wanted to continue to fight for their rights and then being crushed by the new monarchy. That part of that history of the 50s explains, of course, the inherited grievances and hate that you still see being expressed today on the streets of Morocco. And to link the history of neocolonialism with what's going on today, mm. it's interesting that you mentioned in a previous interview that many of the fishing rights that mm. would rightfully belong to the Moroccans, the average Moroccan fishermen, mm. have actually been sold off to foreign companies. Tell us yeah. what is that about? If anyone wants to find this concrete definition of what neocolonialism is, I think Morocco is an excellent example. You know, it's the kind of independence whereby many of the material benefits of pre-independence have remained for the previous colonizers. So France, Spain are very close to the Moroccan states and it's not just because they go way back a long time, but it's really to do with the material interests in the country. So the fishery, I mean, it's just incredible. I I won't bore you with the details, but it's actually not very different from agriculture, where the overwhelming majority that is produced and is actually there swimming is not for domestic use. It's not to feed the hungry people in Morocco. It's for these international corporations. But they get, of course, the Moroccan companies get a share. Otherwise, it doesn't work. So it's not some kind of colonial exploitation of the natural resources of Morocco. It's a very capitalist relationship between the capitalist class of Morocco and these international companies and corporations. This is why it's sustainable. If there wasn't an interest for a certain small, very elite group in Morocco, this would not have happened. And we see it where in cases that are politically easier to exploit for the Moroccan regime and framing it as interference from the West, it's usually cases that they don't have an interest in, that they don't benefit from. Then they will come with this kind of nostalgic image of we are not independent, we're being used. It's all the cases where they do have an interest, yet cases that are directly relevant for independence in the actual sense of the word, that you can sustain yourself, we don't hear them. And so fishery, agriculture, but also other natural sources like phosphate that are very enriching, but don't benefit most of the local domestic consumers uh, are in the hands of international corporations. That is why the case of Martin Fikri in October was so symbolic. That is why it was so symbolic. It wasn't just a humiliation of someone like Mohsin Fikri and the idea of the Mohamed Bouazizi of Morocco, but also the fact that it sort of brought to light the reality behind the ban to fishing for people like him. Yes, and another shock to me, even though I know about Morocco, I lived the first six years of my life there. Right. Where did you live? <laughs> but in, uh, in Rabat, in the capital right. city. Yeah. And back then, it was the previous, previous king. It was the grandfather, Mohammed II. Mm. And 
I was a kid. I loved that one. He seemed to be very popular among the population. Mm. So I went back in 2005 to a mm. place in Morocco where I don't have any friends or relatives. Mm. And so I had to do something I never do usually. I took a tour, bus tour of the area between Marrakesh and uh, Mogador, Sawira. Mm-hmm. And I was not pleased to hear that the tour guide was just plainly telling us without any apparent malice or apparent irony that you see from here all the way to the horizon, those hills a few miles from here, that belongs to the king, all this agricultural land. On the other side, on the left-hand side, that belongs to the king's brother. And over there is the... I was thinking, what's left for them? Yes. <laughs> no wonder there's so many people starving. Yes. Literally, you see people, beggars in Morocco, it just breaks my heart to see people yes. really yes. worried about their livelihood today, yes. tomorrow. Yes. Will they eat? Yeah, and this is, I think, the, the awareness of this is uh, now in triple tempo coming up. So there's been years and years and years of keeping people, you know, ignorant. But in the historical timeline, 20 years is nothing. So in the last 15, 20 years, we've seen a change in terms of access to media because of new infrastructures uh, like the Internet, but also, as I said, this window of opportunity, the early 2000s until mid-2000s. So the awareness about it is growing. And so when you have moments of rupture, like now, rupture because of an unnecessary and very symbolic killing or death or protests like in Al-Husayma, these new awarenesses, this consciousness is being shared in multifold. And this idea that you can just say, oh, that's the king's, that's his brother's, that self-evident tone of it is disappearing. And that's why the regime is so scared because they know the potential threat of masses coming to these conclusions, you know, when they say, actually, no, I reject your logic. Your logic does not make sense. So on that same tour from that same bus on the left-hand side, on the hillside, I see the words Allah, al-Watan, al-Malik, no less. Three words paired together, three words saying God, the homeland, and the king, all three on the same level which again shocked me, even knowing what I know about Morocco. Tell us what implications this holy trinity of sorts conferring upon the king's semi-divine status. Tell us what that means for the status quo as we've seen for so long. I think that's a very important question, and I don't know how much I should restrain myself, because it's one of those red lines. There's three red lines in Morocco. They say that you don't go into too much the Sahara, the legitimacy of the monarchy and religion. So the media um, are not supposed to touch those three red lines. They, well, that's, I mean, yeah. The king, the, the, Islam, the, politi- right, yeah. the religious, the monarchy, and the homeland, you know, Sahara having yeah. come to symbolize Yeah, that. and of course they do sometimes. And that's why they arrested, and their lives are made miserable, and that's why people like Ali Nuzla has to go to jail, and people like Ben Shamshi go away, they whatever, live in America or something. I mean, this is why these ruptures occur, because the red lines are actually a good example of what I just said before in a very sort of unclear way, 
the consciousness of people raising to a certain point where they reject a logic, where they say, wait a minute, what's the logic? Why can't we discuss that? I don't see why you're saying one plus one is three. I really think that it's two. So these red line areas belong to this changing, shifting consciousness. And I think the monarchy is a difficult one because it overlaps with religion. The kind of arenas that overlap, that synchronize, are the most difficult ones to undo. So when you have a monarchy that is saying that they are basically it's the father of the people, it's equal to Allah and to the Watan. And they descend, but, as supposedly descended from, from no exactly, less than the Prophet himself. Exactly, mm. exactly, exactly. So when it's that, plus it's not just al-Malik, it's an amir al-Mu'minin. And the commander of the faithful. The commander of Which the means, in a way, the leader of all Muslims, not just Moroccans. Yeah, well, they're, <laughs> they're, meanwhile, humble enough to understand that there's not going to be many people listening to this part besides those in Morocco. But this has a very powerful implications for people who are mu'minin, you know, who people are who are believing. Believers. They are, I know a lot of Moroccans who are devout and they want to be good Muslims. And if you're being told that that equals being faithful to the king because he is a descendant of that religion, then it's going to be really difficult for those who disagree with the policies and the acts that are legitimate or practiced by that very ruler, it's going to be hard to convince people of that if it means that you're telling them at the same time to reject this authority, which is, I think, why activists have been avoiding that, and very rightfully so. And this is what you've seen when we discussed the last time why it mattered that the current wave of protests have had the experience of the wave of protests in 2011 and 12, this is a concrete example. Those experiences four or five years ago showed it's not going to help you to talk about things like the kingdom and the monarchy. It's much more concrete and useful if you discuss social economic issues and political rights within the system of the Moroccan government or the Muslim. And um, that is now being practiced as well. Among the Islamists, those who potentially might be holier than thou, are there any who openly question the origins of this monarchy that say, wait a minute, yes. that's not in the Koran anywhere or in the Sunnah. Or any, <laughs> I mean, right. Are there yes. those who dare to do that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's why the Adil Wal-Ihsan is such an important movement. Justice mass, and development. Huh? Yes. yes. And it's a mass, mass movement that, unlike the PJD, who had been in the government since 2012, the PGD, the Justice and Development Party. So Adil Al-Hassan is a Justice and Charity Party or movement? Justice and Charity, movement. okay, that's the other one. Also has yes. justice in it, yes. Yes, and the PGD, the political party that joined the elections, is the Justice and Development Party mm -hmm. that was led by Abdul Ilah bin Kiran. Bin Kiran yes. They are very pro-monarchy, and that's the only also reason why they were allowed to even participate in the elections. But Al-Adil Al-Ihsan, the Justice and Charity Movement, does not and actually has been quite... Sheikh Yassin, who passed away a few years ago, was one of the sort of leaders of the movement, charismatic leaders, has always been very critical and doesn't actually acknowledge this lineage and this claim to religious power. So 
there is tension. You can say that there is tension. And I was also surprised and was interested to see in the last major protest march in Rabat two weeks ago, I think, in light of what happens in the Reef and solidarity with the Hirak in the Reef, they also went out, they mobilized. So thanks to their mobilization, the march was gigantic. It was, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. But I think I'd like to be careful also in this and then say they are also Moroccans. They are also people. And they also have the right to go out and claim and disagree with the government, with the king, uh, with other uh, participants in the movement. It's part of the organic coalition that is on the street now. But yes, this link between religion and governmentality has proven to be very unique, I think, to Morocco. So rather than portrays of Moroccan as the exception, the Moroccan exception, because of this exceptionally fine or good way of ruling the people that has led to less violence, etc., as, you know, Washington Post and others like to see it. It has much more to do with this, as you call it, a holy... Holy alliance. Holy uh, alliance. So I think that's why I'm so incredibly in awe I'm proud, if I dare to use a slight reference to some kind of chauvinistic sentiment, uh, of the people of Morocco. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's been amazing videos of thousands of people going out and chanting, Sharif, Jalalat Shab, playing with the words that are reserved for the king, Aash and Malik. king uh, has lived. Uh, now it's turned for, for the people. Yes. Wow. Incredible, and you hear thousands of people chanting that. Men, women, old, young, Asharif, Asharif, and it's instead of, you know, Ashil Malik, or Jalal Muhammad. Long live the reef instead of long live the king. Yes, mm. yes. And long live the people. Symbolic, very, very There were two very daring attempts in the 70s. If I remember correctly, mm. it was in 71, 73, mm. or two consecutive years. When the king, the dynasty almost ended, there are two attempts on the yep. life of the king. It's an incredibly resilient monarchy. It's been there seemingly forever, and yeah, it's I mean, hard the, when yeah. you have a majority of the people really in economic hardship, not to mm. say worse than that. You wonder how long this will go on. Exactly, exactly. You, you mentioned yeah. last week, and we can finish with this question, you mentioned how Yes, GDP is growing in Morocco, but unfortunately so is inequality, just like here in the USA and so many other places. But in Morocco, it's quite dramatic. Is poverty itself growing? Is there a percentage of poor people mm. is growing, or is there just the same basic percentage of people completely left behind getting worse? Mm. No, I think it's increasing. And what you see is it's changing the type of has and has not that we are used to are also changing. It's kind of like what I think you in America call it the working poor. What you see is like a kind of poverty that is still wrapped within this ideological fantasy of, you know, land of opportunity. As long as you work hard, you can make it, but in the meantime, actually being very poor. And this is a recipe for, of course, social unrest. So yes, inequality has increased, and it's because exploitation has increased and those cannot be divorced the incredible investments in morocco big projects if you go to tangier or other ports it is enormous ports 
Morocco wants to be, and I'm sure it can actually be, the biggest port of the region. It already is of Africa. It's competing on that level. You're talking here about a very different level of economic development, and they go hand in hand with exploitation and repression of people. And that is really, I don't know if we can end with that, because I think it's really important to bring also back the political economy. During my time in the last few years, some of the most fierce protests I've witnessed and been to, and backlash in 2014 against the so-called April 6th group, young activists, normal people who went out to protest for economic rights. Those were receiving the harshest beatings. Women who went out to protest in Tangier for union rights were receiving really harsh treatment. So what you see is all these developments and investments and this increasing exploitation is also leading to much more protest and anger. And that is an area of protest that the government is most fearful of. That's why it's interesting to see in the last few weeks where, again, the political is synchronizing with the economic. The political protests in the reef also led to economic protests in the sense of general strikes and the like. And this, I think, is something we need to keep in mind and our eyes on because this is a country that is developing an extremely fast pace and that cannot go well. Mariam Orach is an anthropologist and activist based in the UK. She teaches at the University of Westminster in London, and she is writing a book on February 20th movement in Morocco. To listen to our last week's interview with Dr. Aurak, please visit womina.org. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Up next, the looming human catastrophe in Yemen. now, the UN has been warning of a looming human catastrophe in Yemen that could potentially kill hundreds of thousands of people. United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Stephen O'Brien told the UN Security Council recently that the war 
together with the cholera outbreak and widespread hunger in Yemen, could lead to the collapse of the country. The brutal U.S.-funded Saudi-led military attack on Yemen has claimed more than 10,000 lives and has left the country's infrastructure in ruins. Hussein Mohsen, a Yemeni-American and a founding member of Bay Area-based Yemen Relief Project, recently made a trip to Yemen. I think prior to going to Yemen, I uh, was confused about how there was this extreme uh, hunger or starvation that was occurring there, and, and people were talking about upwards of 14 million people suffering from food insecurities. And I just didn't see how that, that was happening in a country where I felt like there was the ability for resources to get there, for food to be distributed. But as soon as I got to Yemen, I started to understand the bigger picture, that it wasn't just the lack of food, but it was a complete breakdown of the system. There wasn't access to consistent electricity or the medicine was, wasn't readily available to people. It was a complete collapse of, of the country's infrastructure. And that was where I think the, the problem started. As far as um, the idea of some areas of Yemen having uh, suffered more than others, that was something that existed before the war. But now we see it throughout Yemen. When you said throughout Yemen, where did you exactly go? Has any part of the country been spared? No, I didn't see that. I saw that throughout Yemen. I, I landed into Aden, and that city has suffered a lot of damage. Which is in the southern part of Yemen. Yes, in the southern part. I saw a lot of destruction, and poverty was, was clearly you know, something that you saw just walking out from your hotel from the day I got there. And then traveling to the north, you know, you saw it in every village that we went through, and, and you saw that clearly in Sana'a when I when we got there. Sana'a is the capital, and most of the population is concentrated in Sana'a. So what was the situation like in Sana'a? The first thing that I noticed right when I, we drove into Sana'a was the trash. The, there was trash everywhere. I've, I've never seen anything like this in my life, where piles and piles of, of trash, I mean, to simply put it. Nobody has been doing waste management. You know, to make it, they haven't been taking the, the trash out. The government hasn't been paying people to remove the trash, basically. So it was piled up. Power would go on and off throughout the day, but you wouldn't get power more than maybe an hour, an hour and a half, maybe a few hours at night. But it was definitely sporadic. Tell us more about how, how do these cities function? How do people get around from one place to another? Government employees haven't been paid for months. Healthcare professionals and doctors haven't been paid for months and months. As you said, civil servants haven't been paid and garbage is piling up. Mm -hmm. So how are schools functioning? Just give us a sense of what everyday life is like for people. Like you said, people haven't been paid for months and months. I think at the time that I was there, it was eight months that people haven't been paid. But people were still going to work. They were still serving their community in whatever way they could, even though they weren't receiving the paycheck or money in return. They were hoping that hopefully things will change and one day they will get paid. Doctors were still going to the hospital. Nurses were still going to the hospital. Schools were still operating in Sana'a, at least that I saw. And teachers were still teaching, even though they weren't being paid. The system, as far as the general need for the basic essentials were still being served. 
even though um, nobody was getting paid at that time. Walid, I want to turn to you and talk to you about the outbreak of cholera in Yemen. The worsening cholera outbreak is an especially clear and grim example of the consequences of this devastating war and military aggression in Yemen. Tell us why this has turned into an epidemic and how far cholera uh, has spread in Yemen. According to World Health Organization, the outbreak of cholera in Yemen is the worst in the world. Over 218,000 cases have been reported so far. More than 1,400 people have died. And every day some 5,000 people are diagnosed with cholera and half of them are children. Well, you know, Yemen overall declared the state of emergency of cholera on April 27, 2017, and actually Hussein was present there when it was declared as an emergency. Cholera outbreaks happen around the world, and they tend to occur in times of war, in times where people are displaced, um, as Hussein already pointed out, when the public health infrastructure, when the sanitation systems are broken down, cholera is easily contaminating the waters. And it's something that we take for granted in industrialized countries or countries in the West. We don't have to think about our water supply uh, when we turn on the faucets. But in Yemen, it's an everyday question, every minute question, um, as families are cooking or feeding their children, um, drinking water. And as you said, there are different statistics out there reported by the WHO, the World Health Organization, and others. Over 1,100, probably 1,400 now, Yemeni men, women, and children have died from this preventable disease. You know, cholera is a bacteria that contaminates water sources, and it's preventable. And people are dying from it, which is a very unfortunate thing. Mm. You know, in the U.S., if someone has symptoms of diarrhea and dehydration, they can easily rehydrate themselves. But that's not the case for many Yemenis in Yemen right now. Cholera is spread, as you said, through dirty water. And in January of last year, Saudi jets blew up the desalination plant serving the city of uh, Taiz, forcing people to turn to dirtier water for drinking and washing. Was Taiz ground zero for for the epidemic? Right. So Taiz, I think, remains to be one of the central cities where um, supposedly, there are you know rebels on the ground fighting against uh, the Saudi government, Houthis, mm. um, and so forth. Um, and uh, much of the conflict, at least uh, when it came to overthrowing the um, Yemeni government, um, began there. And you know, we understand you know it's a it's a very strategic move for for foreign governments to say that we need to destroy our water supply. And and I I can easily imagine I haven't read the. Statistics. So I can easily imagine, easily imagine that one of the main sources um, began in Taiz because of the destruction of uh, the desalination uh, uh, factories, um, and that's just a very inhumane act. And it's very unfortunate that you know innocent men, women, and children are stuck um, in the crosshairs of you know foreign governments fighting in a land that is not theirs, and so. Um, it's a very unfortunate case, as Hussein pointed out, and as our organization points out. Um, 
you know, we are uh, a non-political group that are seeking, you know, the help of the world to try to address the situation. Ultimately, though, um, we will need a stable government in Yemen to um, provide the public services that people need to get electricity, clean running water, and so forth. And the war needs to stop. Yes. In other words, we are just a band-aid for the problem. Yeah. And very little we can we can do as a nonprofit organization. Mm. I mean, we're not superheroes. We are normal citizens who see people in need. But as you state correctly, we need a Yemeni government that is stable and that is recognized um, by the UN. And ultimately, we need peace. Um, and that's uh, that's a long-term goal. Um, right now, there are just so it's a it's a multifactorial problem in Yemen. And it's going to take time before it gets resolved. But people need to recognize that, our, that there are innocent lives being um, caught in the crosshairs. And, uh, and um, the, U, you know, the U.N., the U.S., the Saudi government need to be pressured to have um, these conversations to try to de-escalate the problems, absolutely. Yeah, and stop the war. War is not good for, mm-hmm. um, uh, for, for many yeah. public health and, and, and just for uh, you know, living day to day. And yes. And that takes me to the project that you're all involved in. And I want to bring you in, Safa, into the conversation. You are a founding member of Yemen Relief Project. You also have an ongoing campaign called Project Heal Yemen, which is raising money to buy medicine for cholera patients. Tell us about Yemen Relief Project. When did you start it and what you have been able to accomplish so far? Yeah, so... I think it's important to remember that despite Yemen having deep-rooted like economical and political issues, there are people who are hungry and are in hospitals or dying that can't wait for those long-term solutions. And so what Yemen Relief Project is aiming to do is to provide that humanitarian aid that people urgently need and, as Walid said, to put the Band-Aid on the this issue. Um, And so we started Yemen Relief Project in 2016. Mm. During that time, the main issue was hunger. So people were trying to give money to their families back in Yemen. And we were noticing that there was a lot of people who maybe didn't have connections outside of Yemen, people who didn't have families abroad sending in money. So we came together, a group of Yemeni Americans, to try to give back to our community in any way we can. And so that started off with a very modest canned food drive that got people Mm. excited. And this campaign started in the Bay Area. It was, yeah. And so high school students were involved, college students, just community members. Eventually it led to a campaign that had like an online social media platform. And so we were able to raise money to buy MANA uh, nutritional packets. What is that? It's called uh, ready-to-use therapeutic foods. And so those are given to children to, it's kind of like a peanut butter that has a lot of the nutrients that children who are suffering with uh, severe acute malnutrition would need to uh, regain their health. And so we sent that on a ship over to the port of Hodeida. And that campaign was pretty successful, although we had some speed bumps on the way just because of 
the war and mm. you know that conflict and so do you have to get a permission sure. Saudi Arabia and its allies have imposed a blockade on imports to Yemen both overseas and via air you make an interesting point I mean we uh, as Safa mentioned so we raised nearly thirty thousand dollars in our first campaign to purchase these nutritional packets and around August last year we we shipped these nutritional packets and pallets of canned goods from Oakland to California to the port of Hodeida in Yemen and as Safa highlighted you know we, we did indeed run into troubles and it's interesting I mean with Saudi Arabia's air campaign and blockade there's a lot of high stakes in the country on the ground many Yemenis are very unsettled and so anything arriving can potentially be a threat to their country which is understandable looking from the inside out what do you mean but by a threat to their country so any shipment that arrives hmm. to your port if um, anyone has any sinister intentions can mm. be any kind of shipment can be weapons can be you know trying to arm the the rebels and so forth or trying to arm people on the ground and, and we understand that but it was frustrating for us as a nonprofit sending this shipment even though we sent paperwork official documents from the consulate here in the bay area saying that we are an identified organization wanting to do good and wanting to provide donations to Yemeni people starving in this conflict. But as our shipment arrived, there are people at the port who didn't want to release it for, for several reasons. And I think one of the main reasons is because they wanted to collect some kind of bribe. Because I would shipment. assume that these ships are closely inspected. Right. In an ideal world, yes. I mean, it would be inspected and people would be fulfilling their duties. But we, we happen to experience you know, the latter that actually we, we faced a lot of difficulty to even get the shipment out of the port, which is actually why the main reason why Hussein needed to leave and retrieve it. Again, as an organization, we told Hussein, you're insane. You cannot go into a war-torn country and try to retrieve this, this shipment. But Hussein is a very generous, and very giving, very brave person, and he was willing to take that risk in order to get these supplies to to Yemenis in need, and, and he did that successfully after trials and tribulations on the ground in Yemen, and we fed over 500 children and their families with it, and so it's quite a feat for us, and, and we can't thank Hussein enough for doing that. Safa al-Dubaini, Hussein Muhsin, and Dr. Walid Hamoud Ahmed are founding members of the Yemen Relief Project, a grassroots charitable organization working to provide humanitarian relief while improving the overall quality of life of Yemeni people in underserved communities. And for more information on how you can support Yemen Relief Project's work, please visit YemenReliefProject.org. That's YemenReliefProject.org. We'll post this information on our website at Vomina.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, 
Email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.